Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast, this time running alongside the March issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob Johns. Hello there. The January NAM show is now behind us, and it seemed like every booth was showing something that relied on an iPod to operate, and yet Apple themselves were once again absent from the show. We found enough new products to keep our reviewers busy for the foreseeable future, and some of those products even had me reaching for my credit card. Since then, Hugh and I have made a couple more Studio SOS visits, including one where the studio roof was a four-lane highway flyover, and of course, we've both been working on reviews and features for forthcoming issues of Sound on Sound. But first of all, Hugh, what you've been working on, has it been fun, and has your bass playing improved this month? Uh, my bass playing, well, I think it's improved, but other people might not. We won't go into that. Yes, I've been having fun. I've been reviewing all sorts of interesting things. Uh, a couple of microphones, a Peluso P67 and uh, Mike W Omnis, which are a little bit similar to the DPA Omnis. Quite nice, high-quality omnidirectional microphones. A couple of converters, a Lavery AD11, which is a mic preamp come converter, A to D converter, and a device from Millennia, which plugs into the lunchbox system. It's quite a clever idea. I also came across some DI boxes which have been mentioned on the forums recently and I've not come across them so I got a set from the manufacturer who are based down in Exeter called Orchid Electronics. It's a novel design actually because they don't use output transformers at all, it's entirely active electronics driving the line which means you haven't got any galvanic isolation but it also means you haven't got any of that harmonic distortion and saturation problems that you can get with transformers. And actually they seem to work really really well and they're very cost effective. So cost effective that I ended up buying a couple myself which probably says quite a lot about them. One of the boxes, I've never come across this before, it's a DI box with a stomp button on the top and it allows you to mute the outputs. So if you're changing guitars or if you want to tune your guitar, you can just stomp on this box and it kills the feed to the PA and and to your amplifier because there's an amplifier feed as well, of course. It's just a very clever design. I was very taken with that. Anyway, what about you? What have you been up to? Well, on the work front, um, I've had some nice KRK three-way monitors to look at. And I thought they performed surprisingly well and then did a double take when I saw the price because they cost rather less than I expected. I also got a couple of items from Line 6, including the new and improved Paul Tyler Variax modelling guitar. And that's worth looking at if you're into that kind of thing because it is significantly better than the original. And I also looked at their DT25 guitar amplifier. Now this has got a modelling preamp, which is uh, nothing new to Line 6 of course, and the EQ section is part of that, but the valve output stage is uh, designed by Bogner, who is the uh, US amp guru who's been helping out with some of their more recent designs. And this output stage is electronically switchable, so you can use it in Class A, Class AB, or Pentode or Triode mode. So by combining those different permutations, you can get quite a lot of flavours of power amp there. It's got a low power mode for recording, and that's uh, also incredibly useful because you can get the sound of a, a really cooking tube amp at quite a low level. So I think that's going to be of great interest to guitar players who both gig and record. Other than that, in my spare time, I've been helping out on an album project which is being put together by Gordon Giltrap and Oliver Wakeman. And I've also been trying to design the ultimate overdrive pedal, but I'll let you know if that works out. It's a good excuse to sniff the solder. The big news for us is that the iPad edition of Sound on Sound is about to be made available. We've been testing the beta version for quite some time now and it looks really good. And the interesting thing is that we've reformatted the pages so that instead of having three columns there's only two. And that means it all lines up on the iPad screen really nicely. You haven't got to do lots of scrolling around to read everything, so it's very easy to use. Photos are also zoomable and there are audio examples built in as well, so you just touch on the screen and you can hear the clips and the audio examples. 
product's going through its final Apple approval at the moment, so we hope to tell you more about this in next month's podcast, when hopefully you'll have been able to see it and use it for yourself. Features. In the March issue of Sound on Sound, you'll find the usual wealth of interviews, reviews and features, including a behind-the-scenes look at the making of Don McLean's American Pie. That's the record, not the recipe. We also have a few techniques for making your mixes sound as loud as possible while inflicting the minimum of sonic damage. And Inside Tracks looks at the man behind Noah 40 Shabib. Our busy review section is again too lengthy to list in detail, but highlights include Isotope's Ozone 5 restoration plug-in suite, the new event BAS 2020 monitor speakers, and Avid Pro Tools 10, which of course can now run completely natively. We'll also check out more mics, including Blue's visually striking Reactor and Audio-Technica's AT2030 small diaphragm stick mic. And at the more esoteric end of the spectrum, we look at Ingram Engineering's MPA685 dual-channel mic preamp, and BAE's latest take on the classic Neve 1073 preamp, all in one box. And of course, we also include a neat array of plugins and samples. Thanks, Hugh. Of course, if you want the latest and greatest news, check out the Sound on Sound website because things are being added every day. Sound advice. Okay, on to the Q&A. The reader asks, why does my automatic pitch correction plugin make my vocal sound unnatural? And in some cases, it even makes them sound more out of tune than when they were originally recorded. Well, there are two parts to this answer. Uh, The unnatural character that you talk of usually occurs when the pitch correction speed is set too fast. What happens then is that all those little natural pitch glides and nuances that a real vocalist produces are converted into unnaturally abrupt pitch change steps. And when taken to extremes, this produces that familiar robotic hard tune effect heard on countless records. Usually setting the speed fader to around halfway or a bit slower than halfway sounds pretty natural with most singers. Now, if some of your notes seem out of tune, you may have left the plugin set in chromatic mode, and that means it tries to correct the pitch to the nearest semitone. Of course, with a reasonably good singer, that can work fine, but if the pitch is more than half a semitone out, uh, as it often is with my singing, or half an octave out in many cases, the plugin might not drag the note to the right semitone, but instead to the one above or the one below the one that you intended, and that can sound pretty horrendous. The best approach here is to set the correction scale to include only those notes that have been sung, and if even this is uh, tricky, then try breaking the song into sections and maybe using a different scale for different sections of the song to try and eliminate all possible rogue notes. However, even this doesn't guarantee complete success uh, if the singer's really sloppy, in which case you may have to resort to something like Melodyne, where you can do more surgical offline correction of pitch and also of pitch bend and vibrato. In fact, you can completely reshape a vocal that way, but it does take a little bit of skill and a lot of time. Yeah, I think that's right. I think with the fast change, then as you say, it can sound very mechanical and very artificial. And really all you're trying to do is, when somebody hits a note, is, is hold them on that note and drag them into tune in a gentle, natural way. So as you say, slowing the attack time down is probably the way to, to do that. Next up is a question which I'm sure he would like to kick off with, and this is about in-ear monitoring. I mean, we all know the um, benefits of it for live performance because it means you do away with the stage monitoring and you get no feedback problems, but there's the expense of all those radio systems. This reader asks, is it possible to just wire the things in, and if so, what do I need to operate them? What do you think on that, Hugh? Yeah, you certainly could wire it in. I mean, obviously, you've got an issue with a wire that you may trip over or fall over or forget to unplug and all those kind of issues. 
uh, but you know, technically speaking, there's no reason why you shouldn't use a wired system. All you need is some device that allows you to control the level going into your ears. It's a good idea, though, to have one with a limiter because it's easy to end up with something louder than you expect. And of course, you, you can't clap your hands over your ears because that's keeping the sound in. Yeah, that's true, especially if you are using a combination of both in-ears and stage monitors, which is likely to cause feedback at some point or other then, uh, as you say, it could get seriously loud in your ear. So either some kind of limiter in the headphone system itself, the earphone system itself, or in the uh, control unit would be a very sensible and wise precaution. And of course, the better the isolation with these uh, earphones, the less volume you actually need to hear yourself. So you can buy relatively inexpensive things, which are a little bit like a, a high-quality Walkman earbud, that kind of thing. But I found that they don't give you particularly good isolation. It's worth spending the couple of hundred pounds to have um, proper ear moulds made, I think. Yeah, I think you're probably right from the comfort point of view as well. But this is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because the more isolation you have, the more distant you feel from your audience. So in professional situations, you're often having to put up extra microphones around the stage just to hear the audience and feed those just into the in-ears so that the artists get some sense of the reaction of the audience. Otherwise, it's a completely dead experience. And the other thing is that because you hear yourself so clearly in the earphones, a lot of vocalists will then tend to under-project, which means that whoever's balancing the PA has got to put more gain into the microphones and you end up with more spill. So uh, you know, in-ears are very useful and they do have a lot of advantages, but there's also some quite significant disadvantages if you don't use them properly. I'm just wondering for smaller gigs whether it's worth just using one on the side that's facing the drummer. A lot of people often use just one ear and the other thing is that sometimes again for pitching it's easier to take one ear out and you may also need to put some kind of comfort reverb in the in-ear monitoring feed as well to help people stay in pitch. Yeah, sounds like a good advice here, thank you. Final question this month is about studio acoustics, and the question is, what's the difference between absorption and diffusion, and where should I use them? Well, absorption does what it says on the tin. It absorbs sound, so sound hitting an absorber hopefully disappears and doesn't come back, whereas diffusion actually scatters that sound around. It allows it to reflect back into the room. Normally, sound hits a reflective surface and bounces off at an angle which is equal to the incident angle. With a diffuser, it bounces off in all sorts of different angles, so it kind of scatters it across the room. So you're not losing energy from the room, and that's the key difference. You're keeping all of that sound energy in the room, but you're just spreading it around more evenly, and often that can be quite a useful thing to do. So I guess one advantage of that would be it would reduce some um, hard flutter echoes at higher frequencies, that kind of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. Often if you put a lot of absorbers in the room, it can end up sounding very dead and very dull, and that can be quite a tiring place to work in, actually. Whereas with diffusion, you don't lose that energy, so you don't get the, the hard echoes and the reflections that might cause problems, but you don't lose the energy either. Now, I know a lot of people put shelves of gear at the back of the room just to scatter the sound, so I'm guessing that in the smaller studio, diffusers will be best deployed near the rear of the room rather than at the front because they need some distance to work. Yeah, you can't have them too close to you because the sound doesn't get a chance to you know, spread into the room very well if they're too close. So it's quite common to put them on a back wall. And as you say, shelves with, with all sorts of bric-a-brac on, CDs, books, DVDs, whatever you've got, uh, boxes of software, that kind of thing. Just randomly scatter them around the shelves so that there's no solid flat surfaces that extend in any particular length. Uh, and that will act as quite an effective diffuser. But you can, of course, buy commercial diffusers, some of them just made of simple expanded polystyrene in the form of tiles and maybe four or five inches thick. Yeah, absolutely. Or you can make them yourself with bits of wood, lots of different size bits of wood, bolt them all together or screw them together. <laughs> all right, thanks for that one. Sound on sound. Take a talk.
Right, now it's on to our Tech Talk section, and uh, this is inspired by going around the NAM show, where it seemed that almost every single product you could see had to have an iPad attached to it, otherwise it wouldn't work. Now, you can see why manufacturers adopt this, because it's actually cheaper for them to get the customer to buy the iPad for a start, uh, to use as a custom interface, rather than having to design a bespoke touchscreen. But my worry on this, I don't know about you, is that consumer technology tends to have a shorter lifespan than professional technology, and it may be that the piece of kit is still working when the necessary iPad to make it go is several generations beyond and maybe not backwards compatible. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm in two minds about it, a bit like you really. Certainly from a designer's perspective, having a product which already has the operating system and the touchscreen interface and all that already well-engineered takes a lot of design work out and all they've got to do is come up with an app that will run on that iPad platform to control their hardware. But as you say, hardware tends to change so quickly. We're already at the second iPad. The third one is is muted for coming in a few months' time and there'll be a fourth one before the end of the year, I expect. And it just makes you wonder, you know, these things change size, the connectors often change. It does make you wonder whether it's going to be a good idea as a long-term investment. But on the other hand, as you say, you get some really quite impressive facilities for not much money. Yeah, I think it's reasonably safe in the medium term because Apple seemed to have adopted the same connector for the phones and for the iPads. And I can't see why they'd want to change that unless they come up against some technical limitation that forces them to do it. Already you can buy a 16-channel audio interface from RME, so they're quite capable things as they stand. And at the show, I did notice that someone had a 48-channel door, which you could just run on there, including plugins, which mm. is quite remarkable when you think what we used to do with tape recorders the size of cookers and now you can all get it on this thing the size of a table mat yeah it is it is very impressive indeed the other thing that worries me slightly is what happens when they change the operating system we read on the forums all the time people that have trouble with uh, their new windows 7 system that won't run stuff that was designed in the days of xp or people that have got mac donkey and it won't run on mac badger or whatever you know and these changes of, of operating system render the drivers useless uh, and the same thing could easily happen with with ipad software so um I'll watch it with interest. I don't think I would commit a lot of money in that direction just at the moment, but there are some quite impressive products coming out and it is an interesting idea. Yeah, I think the a lot of money is the relevant term because in the medium term, I'd quite happily spend a few hundred pounds on a product that might give me a few years of reliable service. If it was something that costs thousands of pounds, then I might think twice. Sure. As you say, it's, it's clever in that these manufacturers expect you to have the iPad already, so that's you know three or four hundred pounds off for the cost of their product that they don't have to worry about, but you do. Yeah, a good case in point there is the Mackie mixer, of course, the little 1608 uh, digital mixer, which, as the name implies, has got 16 ins, eight outs. It's a live sound mixer, but the entire operating system or the entire interface lives on an iPad. The good part of that, of course, is that you can carry the iPad to the back of the pub and mix from there without having to run a multi-core. And quite often the price of a multi-core, not to mention the hassle of wiping beer off it at the end of the night. Yeah, it, it, that all sounds good, but presumably the iPad talks to the console with Wi-Fi. It does, so, so you wouldn't want to go to a huge venue with it, but in a pub I think you'd be fine. Yeah, but what happens if you go into a pub and they're running their Wi-Fi on the same channel as you are? Well, they're quite robust, these things. Mm. Yes. Trust me. Hmm. I'm, I'm dubious, but OK, yeah. let's watch yeah. and see what happens. And the audio doesn't drop out. All that would happen is you'd lose control, you'd lose control. and have to walk closer to the stage to get it back if that did happen. But that's the one thing that, um, that met my practical needs. And I'm quite prepared to risk the few hundred pounds it costs to buy one. Yeah, no, interesting. I will look forward to seeing it.
Well, that's about all we've got time for this month. So once again, it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Thank you.